Reading is from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 7. It's page 812 if you're using that blue Bible. I wrote about this passage in its context this last week in the pastoral letter. I highly recommend you grab it. There's 25 or 30 copies back on the credenza. Interesting enough, in today's Sunday school class, in the discussion, what I had to say in the letter actually applied very heavily with that. And so there is a specific application Jesus has in mind to these promising words, but the promise is still there for us. So Matthew 7, beginning at verse 7, our Lord says, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? And now we turn to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 1 through the first verse of, first five, of chapter 5. Yes, we can do this. Second Chronicles 1, 1 through 5, 1. As we continue our series through First and Second Chronicles, we ended First Chronicles last week, and now we move earnestly into Second Chronicles. And so notice then, everything is now moved to the next generation. Chapter 1, verse 1, Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and Yahweh his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. And so Solomon goes to seek the Lord, at the place the Lord had said, seek me, at the tabernacle, which is over in uh, Gibeon. And so he goes there and seeks the Lord. And sure enough, as the Lord has promised, whoever seeks him will find him. He finds him. Verse 7, in that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said to God, you have shown great and steadfast love to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. O Yahweh, God, let your word to David, my father, be now fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours who is so great? God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart. And you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you. And have not asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may govern my people over whom I made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. And so comes an example of, starting in verse Uh, 13 to the end of the chapter of how the Lord is answering that prayer. Solomon gains power, gains prestige, gains honor, gains wealth. And then comes chapter 2. Now Solomon purposed to build a temple for the name of Yahweh and a royal palace for himself. And so he begins to put together the manpower for it and he then petitions a pagan, a Gentile named Hiram, king of Tyre. And he lays out for him, I'm going to build this great temple. So down in verse 5 and 6. The house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? And so then Solomon lays out his 
a plan what he needs from Hiram. So he's entering into a contract. Hiram responds down in verse 11. And as I read 11 through 13, listen for this pagan's believing confession of faith. He says things pagans will not say. Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, answered in the letter that he sent to Solomon, because Yahweh loves his people, he has made you king over them. Hiram also said, Blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel, who made heaven and earth. It's almost the same confession of faith as Rahab the prostitute as she professed her faith in the same God. No pagan would have said that. Marduk is the one who did that. Tiamat did that. Maybe Baal did it or Ra. But no, here's this pagan and he's professing his faith. Yahweh made heaven and earth who has given King David a wise son. Oh, he plans the future too who has discretion and understanding, who will build a temple for Yahweh and a royal palace for him. Hiram shows himself to actually be a believer. And so he enters into the contract. He says, yeah, I'll do all these things you asked, and you give me back this. And so it happens. And so then chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Hmm. Hmm, says good Bible readers. Hmm, Mount Moriah. And it goes on, where Yahweh had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And so the rest of chapter 3, all the way to the first verse of chapter 5, shows how Solomon builds the temple, the dimensions, and all that the things are made of, the furnishings are made of inside, and all of that. And so it ends with chapter 5, verse 1, thus all the work that Solomon did for the house of Yahweh was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated and stored the silver, the gold, and all the vessels in the treasuries of the house of God. What I've read to you from Matthew 7, and what I've summarized and read for you from 2 Chronicles chapter 1 through 5, my friends, it is the word of the Lord. It is the living, the life-giving word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. You have shown great and steadfast love to our forefather David. And in our Lord Jesus, you show us the same. Give us the eyes to see our Lord Jesus in this place in Scripture and give us ears to hear what you are leading us toward in this holy word. Amen. You may be seated. If you're visiting and don't know, on the back of the worship guide, you will find the sermon outline. There's just two points. There's a quotation in there that I'll bring up towards the end. And there's some questions down at the end there. So I just got done reading a book by Marvin Olasky and Leah Savas called The Story of Abortion in America. And one of the things they point out is the same thing that George Grant pointed out in his book 30 years ago, third time around. That in, the 18, that in the 1850s in the United States of America, abortion was becoming a huge problem in America. And by the time of the 1850s, it was a, it was a significant issue. It was actually being, uh, starting to be addressed with its attendant worldview. There's a worldview that goes along with it. So it was being addressed and it had become a serious problem. Abortion was being bolstered by the rise of industrialization and urbanization. And as the 1850s were coming to a close and this issue was being addressed, a national, 
a national revival broke out. It actually began in a prayer meeting in Philadelphia. And it grew and it grew and it continued on. And that revival was attended by things like the founding of the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association. That revival came at the worst moment in American history up to that point, the financial crash, crash of the 1850s in the United States that gutted all banks and everybody's pay, earnings were shot and savings was shot. Everybody suffered from that great uh, financial crisis in the 1850s. And that revival came in that time. And that revival fostered works that prepare, provided safe places for uprooted young men who were moving away from their families out on the farmsteads, moving into the cities. And it provided safe places for young women who were moving away from family and society where aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and family were and bringing them to the city. And both of them, the young men and the young women, were very vulnerable to predation and being prayed and preying on others. And so there were organizations began to arise to provide safe places. The YMCA was one of them. The precursor to the YWCA was also another one to provide a safe environment where young men could actually have some community. We were talking about that in class this morning. Some community where they would not be prone to preying on young women. And the young women had places now safe where they could go as well and not be preyed upon. It laid the groundwork, this revival laid the groundwork for homes, for unwed women who were pregnant in the cities, who had nobody except for their paramour, their lover, who had gotten them pregnant and now was pressuring them to get an abortion. There now rose up these homes for these unwed women who were pregnant, and they were run by older Christian women who walked with these mothers all the way through the pregnancy and all the way through the giving birth into motherhood and what motherhood looks like and got many of them safely back home to their families and so forth. That revival built up churches. The churches increased in number by 100% um, within just three years throughout all that region. The reason why I bring this up, my friends, is because real revival and reformation, as it takes root, brings fruit that often lasts for years. It brings fruit that is durable and resilient. Well, here we are, Second Chronicles. Revival and reformation that began clear back in First Chronicles is now taking root in the next generation. And it begins to fill out in tangible ways that draw God's people deeply into the promises of God and move God's people further on into the purposes of God. And so we're going to look at two points. That's really how the first five chapters breaks down is just two points. And they're all related to God's promise to David back in 1 Chronicles 15. No, David, you will not build me a house, but I will build your house, chapter 1. And your son after you will be my son, and he will build my house, chapter 2, 1 through 5, 1. God's promise in 1 Chronicles 15 is now played out here. And so Yahweh builds David's house. It's chapter 1. Notice the first verse. Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and Yahweh, his God, was with him, and made him exceedingly great. 
That first verse is a summary verse of the first nine chapters of 2 Chronicles. The whole story of Solomon, or at least the story as he recounts the, as the editor recounts it here. It summarizes all nine chapters. Now, on the one hand, the historian expects that you know the rest of the story. Those of you who used to listen to Paul Harvey, you know what I'm talking about. The historian depends on you knowing the rest of the story, what's over in 1 Kings chapter 1 through 11, including the darker side where Solomon fails miserably towards the end of his life. He's not sugarcoating anything. He just assumes you know the rest of the story. It's just like when you read the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say a lot of the same things. But when you get to John, John just assumes you know all the story from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so he can now then focus on other things you don't know about Jesus' life and set those things to the side. You get my point? So it's the same thing here. The writer, the editor, assumes you know the rest of the story over in 1 Kings 1-11. through But further notice that Verse 1 helps us to recall the Lord's promise to David back in 1 Chronicles 15 that he also himself, David, rehearses to his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 22, for example. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest and I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies for his name shall be Shalomo, Shalom, Solomon, peace boy. His name will be Shalomo, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. And he will build a house for my name, and he will be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. So that verse 1 is extremely important. Then you start moving to verse 2 through 6. And you vaguely remember, because I emphasize it so much, you vaguely remember David's charge to Solomon. And you, Solomon my, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For Yahweh searches all hearts and he understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. Verse 2 through 6, Solomon is taking that charge to heart. And he is seeking the Lord. He goes to the tabernacle. The temple's not yet been built. He goes to the tabernacle, which is down in Gibeon somewhere which is aging, it's hundreds of years old now, and you know if you've ever dealt with animal skins and things like that, it all begins to decay. It's aging, but he goes there because that's where the Lord said, you will meet me. He goes there and he seeks the Lord there, and lo and behold, what happens? He finds the Lord just as he was told, seek him and he will be found by you. Or as James puts it, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So he seeks the Lord, verse 2 through 6, and sure enough, the Lord is there. And that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you, etc. He seeks the Lord, and he finds him. He finds the Lord so close that he hears this offer. Ask what you shall give. Ask what I shall give you. Excuse me. Ask what I shall give you. Six short words that pack a wallop. What Christian doesn't wish they heard those words themselves, right? That's why, you know, the Aladdin's lamp and the genie and all that stuff is so popular in America. Because we all want a genie who just give us our three wishes. And here's the Lord. Ask what I shall give you. It packs a wallet. But my friends, 
The same offer is made by our Lord Jesus to us in Matthew 7. Seek, you'll find. Ask, it'll be given to you. Knock, and the door will be open to you. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more does your good father know how to give you good gifts? Ask, seek, knock. We have been given the exact same offer. Ask what I should do for you. Which brings us and prepares us for when we finally get to chapter 7, verse 14. And God says, My people who are called by my name, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked way, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Ask what I shall give you. And so Solomon responds... And he responds, first off, verse 8, by recounting, recounting God's past graces. He says, in verse 8, he says, You have shown, past tense, you have shown great and steadfast love to David, my father, and you've made me king in his place. He recounts in his prayer, the very first thing he does, he recounts God's past graces. What a good place to begin prayer. Where do we normally begin prayer? I'm miserable, help me! Right? Not a good place to begin. No, you know, Lord, your steadfast love endures forever. I remember when you did this. I saw you when you did that. So he recounts God's past graces, but then he gives God two requests. First off, verse 9, that he would fulfill his promises to David. Oh, Yahweh God, let your word to David, my father, be now fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. And it's an interesting request because God is already fulfilling his promise. And as good Americans who probably all suffer from ADHD in some way, we go, why would you want to talk about the promises he's already fulfilling? Because that's where you begin, right? You promised. That's all that matters. And so I'm going to go back and say, keep up what you promised. You promised you would build David's house. Look at me. You put me as his, his, his son, as king. You're fulfilling your promise. Fulfill your promise, Lord. The second request he makes is, and give me some wisdom to govern these people well. That's his second request, to give him the wisdom to rule well. My friends, those are that's a valuable set of requests. Praying God's promises. Lord Jesus, you said you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You promised and you rose again on the third day and you are ascended to heaven and no one can take that promise from you. You're fulfilling it. Please fulfill your promise. Praying the promises. And secondly, Asking for the wit, the wisdom, the know-how, the savvy to lead rightly. Every one of you is a leader. You didn't know that probably, but you are a leader. Or as I used to say to my kids all the time, you're always an example. You're either a bad example or you're a good example, but you're never not an example. Right? But we're all leaders in some way. How fitting for us to ask for the wisdom, the know-how, the savvy to lead rightly. Whether leading at work whether leading the little tribe in our homes or leading a church, just put it in there. How a fitting set of requests, praying the promises and asking for the wisdom to lead. And so what does the Lord do? He replies. 
And his reply, to summarize it, is this. Good requests, son, since you haven't asked selfishly for selfish things, then I will give you selflessly what you ask. That's it in a nutshell. Verse 11 and 12. I'll give you the wisdom you ask for. Ah, but God surprises us. And I will give you even far more than you ask. Notice at the end of verse 12. I'll give you the wisdom you ask for, but then all of a sudden, right smack dab in the middle of verse 12, I will also give you the richest possessions, honors, such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you will be, have a like. I will answer your request far more abundantly than you've even thought or you've asked. Does that sound like somebody in the New Testament? Like maybe Paul in Ephesians 3 and verse 20? After he gets done praying for the church at Ephesus, he says, what does he say? He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And here you have a great example of that. Here God says, I will answer abundantly, far abundantly beyond what you've asked or even thought. Doesn't that encourage you? Yes. This whole set of books, First and Second Chronicles, is meant to do that, to encourage in us that anticipation, that confidence when we come to pray. Remember, what's the very first story in First Chronicles? It's Jabez. And Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. Now, Jabez's mama called him pain, saying, because I bore you in pain, right? Remember that? And who did he, what did he do? What's the only honorable thing Jabez does that he's remembered for? He prayed to the God of Israel. He prayed to the one who said, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He prayed to the God of Israel. Oh, that you would bless me indeed, enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me and that you would keep me from evil that I may not cause pain. Give me a new denominator. Give me a new direction. Give me a new destiny. And the last sentence of that story is, God gave him his requests. All the way through First and Second Chronicles, that adrenaline shot in the arm, if you will. Pray, and know that you're praying to the one who can answer, who is able to answer far more abundantly and you ask or think. And here's another story to prove that. And so then, sure enough, verses 14 through 17 is a very quick summary example of God answering part of Solomon's prayer as he builds up Solomon's firepower, he builds up Solomon's prestige, and he builds up Solomon's wealth, and he builds up Solomon's influence in the region. That's it in verses 14 through 17. And so the Lord is building David's house. He's building his dynasty as he said. Let me say it again. He's building David's dynasty as he said. Second Chronicles 1, which brings us back to a principle we cannot get away from. What the reliable God says... Reliable God Woo! Preach it! Yeah! That's right. What the reliable God says... The reliable God does. Who doesn't need to be reminded of that? Every one of us. We forget. As soon as you walk out the door, you'll forget. Because I forget. We need to hear this over and over and over again because at our hearts, we're all stinking unbelievers. 
But what the reliable God says, the reliable God does. Another example. And so then, as, as the Lord is building David's house, now David's son builds Yahweh's house. And that's chapter 2 to the first part of chapter uh, 5. Notice then that this is what God promised David that his son would build Yahweh's house. And this is exactly what David charged Solomon to do. You have to go back to 1 Chronicles 15 and then 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 9. It's being done in the way that God had directed. None of the building that Solomon is doing is according to Solomon's preference. None of the building that Solomon is doing on the temple is based upon Solomon's prejudice and bias. None of the building of the temple that Solomon is doing is based upon his flavor, his, desi- his style preference. How do you know that? Because remember, clear back in 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 19. I pointed it out then, as David is giving over to Solomon the dimensions and the directions on building the temple, he says these words. All this Yahweh made clear to me in writing from the hand of Yahweh all the work to be done according to the plan. Solomon is building according to the plan. It's almost identical language to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai when he sees the the pattern, the plan of the tabernacle. And Yahweh says to him, the Lord says to him over and over again, now make sure you build the furnishings according to the pattern that was showed you on Mount Sinai. Make sure you build the tabernacle according to the pattern, the plan that was shown to you on top of Mount Sinai. This is that new moment. And Solomon is doing exactly that. He's building it exactly as the Lord wants it to be built. And notice that as Solomon begins to build that Gentile outsiders are being drawn into the work. Some of it's forced labor, and there's a whole other discussion there. Some of it's forced labor at this point, back up in verse 2 through uh, verse uh, 3, and then down at verse 17 and 18. But also notice there's people like Hiram. As Solomon begins to build the temple, notice that Gentile outsiders are being drawn into this work, implying early on That the temple was always meant to be. The temple was always meant to be the worldwide centerpiece for all nations. Or in the words of our Lord Jesus in in Mark chapter 11, a house of prayer for all nations. It was always meant to be that. It was never meant to be just for our kind. It was always meant to be a place to draw in all nations. A place where all can come and approach God on his terms. Fast forward a few hundred years, and you hear from the lips of our Lord Jesus that he actually claims to be now the temple and all that the temple was meant to be. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Speaking about the, of the temple of his body, John chapter 2. And so in the call to worship, you can't miss it. When Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is a house of prayer for all nations in the flesh. He is everything the temple 
was pointing to and picturing the house of prayer in the flesh. I like that. That's pretty cool. The house of prayer for all nations in the flesh. And sure enough, notice here that Hiram, an outsider, even before the temple is being built, just as Solomon was getting ready to put everything into place and work at it, even Hiram, the, the king of Tyre, is drawn into God's world rescue operation, praising God, adoring him, and confessing his faith. That, his statement in verse 12 and 13 should stop you dead in your tracks and you realize, that boy's converted. And it's all about the temple. Wow. And so then, David's son Solomon also has his theological screws tightened down just right. They're not tightened too tight, and they're not tightened too loose. You can't miss it. It's right there in verse 5 and 6 as he's telling Hiram why he's building the house. And what happens, Solomon recognizes two things. God's immensity and God's eminency. Right? The eminency, I-M-M-I-N-E-N-C-Y, the nearness. God's immensity, nothing can contain him. This house can't contain him. Can't ever make anything big enough to hold him. His immensity, and yet his eminency, and yet God wants to be near his people. He wants to be close to his people. He who is immense draws near. It's just like God promises in Isaiah 57. Verse 15, thus says the high and holy one, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and with him who is of a humble and contrite heart, to revive the spirit of the humble, revive the heart of the contrite ones. His immensity and his eminency. Too bad that Solomon's, Israel's descendants hundreds of years later won't believe that, and that's why they will stone Stephen, who actually plants his flag on this point reference to the temple. God cannot be packaged or boxed in, and yet God is present and brings us near to him. And it all has to do with the temple. That sounds interestingly familiar. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who's in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. The immensity and the eminency all come together like a spearhead in our Lord Jesus. Pretty cool. Thirdly, notice that the temple is established at the very place of the crux of God's fitting justice and His undeserved mercy. It's there at the threshing floor, chapter 3, verse 1. There at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And hopefully you remember the story from 1 Chronicles 16. The place where the angel of the Lord comes with fitting justice, bringing a plague. And David sets up on that place the altar and a substitute sacrifice. And God's fitting justice is poured out upon that substitute sacrifice. And the door and the way into God's undeserved mercy is thrown wide open. And notice the temple is being built right there. Ah, but something else about chapter 3, verse 1, in the place of the temple. It's being built on the place where God provides. Being built on Mount Moriah. Do you remember the story from Genesis 22? God had promised Abraham 
Abraham, you'll have a descendant. Between you and Sarah, you'll have an offspring. And that offspring, through that offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham and Sarah had one boy. His name was Isaac. Twelve years later, God says, okay, Abraham, I want you to go to this place I'm going to show you, Mount Moriah, and sacrifice the boy. You can only imagine what was going on in Abraham's heart, in his mind. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that he went in faith, believing that God must be able to raise the dead. He takes his son Isaac up the hill, up the mountain, Mount Moriah, and when his son says, where, I see the fire, I see the wood, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide. Takes him up, binds him, lays him on the altar. And just as he is about to plunge his knife into his heart, the angel of the Lord stops him and says, okay, enough. And there's a ram right behind him. He brings the ram as a substitute for Isaac and sacrifices him. And the place becomes known as the place where the Lord provides. The Lord provided life. The Lord provided a substitute. But the Lord provided more. There at Mount Moriah, the Lord then turns to Solomon and says to him, Solomon, I will give you offspring that will outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And by the way, your offspring, he will possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Lord provided the promise there at Mount Moriah, where the temple is now being built, of his world rescue operation through his offspring. And we all sit around and go, now who's the offspring he's talking about? And Paul says in Galatians 3, glad you asked, let me tell you. It's Jesus, the offspring through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And you who belong to Jesus are part of that offspring now that is innumerable as the stars and as the sand on the seashore. Notice the temple is being built right there where the Lord provides. The place that points us over and over again to who Jesus is and what he has done, is doing, will do for his people. The temple is all about Jesus picturing him in so many different levels and in so many different ways. And so Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And that's what happens in the rest of chapter 3 through the first verse of chapter 5. 3, 4, and the first verse of 5. So as the temple is being built, let me just summarize those two chapters very quickly. Notice that as the temple is being built, there are several aspects that keep a rich continuity with the past, with the tabernacle, And there are some suggestive discontinuities. There is still gold being used on the inside of the sacred palace, just like in the tabernacle. And bronze is being used on the outside in the courtyard. So gold is for the inside, bronze is for the outside. That's still happening. The shape and the design of the temple and the layout of the temple is basically the same as the tabernacle with the same furnishings. Lamp, incense, altar, table of the bread of the presence inside. And then outside, the bronze basin and the bronze altar outside. All this continuity. And yet some suggestive discontinuities. Inside, in the most holy place, now there are cherubim that are giants. They fill the whole room so that they are guarding the ark when it finally comes in. That was a little unusual or different. 
and they're made of gold, and they're brilliant, and they're bigger. And then all the inside of the temple is paneled with cedar, and all the panels are given gold leafing, so that as the lamp is lit, that means there's going to be lots of light bouncing around inside the temple. Another discontinuity. And then you go outside, and you look there at that basin, that big, big wash basin of bronze, and something its same and yet something new. Now it's going to be set on the backs of 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing east, three facing south, three facing west. I just got that backwards. Hold on. North, east, south, and west. That's intriguing. 12 oxen for the number of Israel, and they're facing the four points of the cup of the compass. Like maybe God intends already to be teaching his people to think outside of their ethnic boundaries and their geographic boundaries to God's world rescue operation. But all the sacred palace has that continuity and discontinuity. One last big discontinuity is that the palace, the temple, is far, far bigger than the tabernacle ever was. Notice the dimensions. If you look back in chapter 3 and and so on, you'll see the dimensions. It's about 2,700 square feet in width and length. 2,700 square feet. That's a big old house. You know what I'm saying? I mean, mine's 1,900 square feet, so that's 1,000 square feet more than what I've got. That's a big house. But what's intriguing is that it's 18 stories tall. It's it's, uh, 18 stories tall. Think about the state capitol. Oklahoma State Capitol, that's about the same height. And if you're driving on the interstate and you look over to the left as you pass you know, down that area, what can you see? And it stands out, State Capitol. The temple is meant to be a beacon calling all nations to the Lord. So there's this continuity and discontinuity. Notice that Solomon builds it bigger and he builds it grander. As he says in chapter 2, verse 5, the house that I am about to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. Notice his theology is behind and being displayed in the building. This rock-solid theology is being proclaimed in a rock-solid structure. So my friends, let me come to that quotation in your sermon notes. Maybe this will help a little bit. In 1965, this really awesome book was written and published. It's called Christ and Architecture. I love this book. It's a delightful book. It's written by Donald Brugink and Carl Droppers. The, the pictures in it are hugely dated. They're from the 1950s and 60s. But the point of the book is that our architecture proclaims our theology. We need to start taking our architecture more seriously. And the principle is being drawn from this passage here. So here's how they put it, and this will help you, I think, to see why the temple was so important the way it was built. If the gospel of Christ is worthy of accurate verbal proclamation week by week, it is worthy of faithful architectural proclamation where its message speaks year after year. Church architecture is therefore first and foremost a matter of theology rather than a matter of style. You should probably take that last statement and hold on to that. As you look at buildings, you look at our building, you look at other buildings. Oh, church architecture is a matter of theology more than a matter of style. What theology is being proclaimed in our various structures? 
I love where City Prez is downtown, our sister church down there. That building was built in a day that actually believed the gospel and believed actually probably was pre-millennial or post-millennial, you know, had this sense of Jesus' kingdom is coming and we're part of it and it's declared in the structure. You can't miss it in some of the older church buildings. That's the thinking behind the temple. So there you have it. Second Chronicles chapter 1 through 5, 1. Yahweh builds David's house, and the son of David builds Yahweh's house. Just a couple, three thoughts as we wrap this up. My friends, much of 2 Chronicles 1 through 5 would have reminded God's beleaguered people as they were coming out from exile and should remind God's people in any season that what the reliable God says, the reliable God does. And that's why when we get to chapter 20 and verse 20, I keep rehearsing it. Believe in the Lord your God and you'll be established. Believe as prophets and you will succeed. But further, this episode shows us that in seeking after God and drawing near to him, we are offered a similar offer. Ask what I shall do for you. Therefore, this story, if nothing else, and it has lots to say to us, if nothing else, though, it encourages us to pray. It encourages us to ask with confidence, not arrogance. Name it and claim it is arrogance. Demanding and telling God how to do his business is arrogance. But coming in confidence is totally different. Come in confidence. Settle in on God's promises. Lord, there's more month than there is money this month. I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet, but you promised. Let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, he will never leave me nor forsake me so that I may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or how about, I just don't feel like God loves me. I know I'm a Christian, I've been baptized and all that. Well, go back to the promises. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And you sang that in hymn 94 tonight, this morning. Who doesn't need to go back and settle in on the promises? Settle in on the promises. And when you're worried about the future, hopefully you're more worried about the future of the church than you are the country. When you're worried about the future of the church, plant yourself on the promises. I will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail. Settle on the promises, but also bring up the more practical things. Like, how do I lead these people? Lord, how, how do I lead this family? Maybe you came from a family where you didn't have any good examples when you were growing up and you really don't know how to raise your kids or how to love your wife, or how to love your husband? Great question. Lord, how do I lead this family? Give me wisdom to lead this family. Lord, how do I run this organization? Lord, how do I direct this cross-country team, or whatever you want to put in there? That was for you, Dave. Lord, how do I guide this church? Lord, give me wisdom to connect to these kids in Sunday school, or in vacation Bible school. I mean, really connect with them. Lord, give me the wisdom. Give me the understanding. Bring those things too. 
But next, my friends, I hope you saw it. I hope you can't miss it. At so many levels, this is all actually about our Lord Jesus, who is the very centerpiece of God's world rescue operation, the greater son of David, the temple displaying him and picturing him for us in so many ways, the one who is the centerpiece of God's world rescue operation, the one who is drawing all people to himself, the one who is the house of prayer for all nations in his very person. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. He who is in his person, the house of prayer for all nations. And even high rooms of the world are being drawn to him and find themselves close to God. Praise the Lord. This is all about Jesus. And so, dear friends, this whole episode is meant to draw God's people deeply into the promises of God and to move God's people further into the purposes of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this story, this whole scene, and how you, the reliable God, do what you say you're going to do. We can count on it. We can bank on it. Lord, we believe that. And honestly, we don't always believe it. Forgive us for our disbelief. And I pray that today, as we think about this and mull this over, we will be firmly entrenched in that reality, what the reliable God says the reliable God does. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the house of prayer for all nations, who is lifted up from the earth and is now drawing all people to himself. We thank you for the Hirams that we have met over the years who have come out of, from outside and have come in and who have confessed their faith in you because of your good grace. Lord, may we see more of it. May we see more of it in the next year, in the next two years, that we may rejoice and give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.